Mark Buchanan is a, a Christian writer. He lives on Vancouver Island, actually. And a number of years ago, he wrote this. I belong to the cult of the next thing. It's dangerously easy to get enlisted. It happens by default, not by choosing the cult, but by failing to resist it. The cult of the next thing is consumerism cast in religious terms. It has its own litany of sacred words. More. You deserve it. New. Faster. Cleaner. Brighter. It has its own deep-rooted liturgy. Charge it. Instant credit. No down payment. Deferred payment. No interest for three months. It has its own preachers, evangelists, prophets, and apostles. Admin. Pitchmen. And celebrity sponsors. It has, of course, its own shrines, chapels, temples, meccas, malls superstores, club warehouses. It has its own sacraments, credit, and debit cards. It has its own ecstatic experience, the spending spree. The cult of the next thing's central message proclaims, crave and spend, for the kingdom of stuff is here. Why does this cult of the next thing suck us in? Ultimately, it's because rather than being content, our sinful hearts crave and covet more and then more and then more. We are on the 10th commandment. It's found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, and says this, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his axe ox or his axe or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, I like this catch-all at the end. It's not trying to give you this specific list and don't covet these specific things of your neighbor's. It's expanding it to anything that is your neighbor's, which is helpful because some of these things seem a little dated, right? The King James Version says uh, ox and ass, and I personally, I haven't, crave, I haven't coveted a neighbor's, you know, Okay, uh, right, so there's, so some of this needs some translation here, and, and really, we don't have the male servants or female servants thing going on here, but Molly Maid shows up to the neighbor, and we go, ah, look at that, as you're scrubbing your own floor. They got the Molly Maid, or you're in your yard trying to make your landscaping look reasonable, and the professional landscapers pull up to your neighbor's place, and you go, oh. Coveting your neighbor's anything is really what we're talking about here this morning. Covetousness, I, I like the way Thomas Watson, the Puritan preacher, put it, put it. He said these two things about covetousness. It's an insatiable desire of getting the world and an inordinate love of the world. Thomas Watson called covetousness an insatiable desire of getting the world and an inordinate love of the world. We could also say that covetousness is to desire more than enough. It's the desire for more than enough, or probably the working term we'll use most here this morning when we think about covetousness is to crave and yearn for something that belongs to someone else. It's not merely to have cravings or yearnings, desires, but to crave and yearn for something that is somebody else's.
covetousness really is the great enemy of the greatest commandment. Jesus affirmed in, in the New Testament that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. But covetousness gets us stuck in the weeds. When our thoughts are taken up with desire for what others have, it keeps us from loving them well and being satisfied in God. Covetousness gets us in the weeds. My wife is a far better cook than I am, and she cooks more often than I do. So I'm usually the errand boy where she's partway through cooking and is like, oh no, I need these two ingredients. Can you run out and grab these two ingredients? And I prefer that task to, uh, to trying to make food taste good. And so I jump in the car and go to the store. And over the years, I've learned I need to write down what literally just the two things are I need from the store. Because I, for years, I would go to the store and be like, I know I'm here for two things. What are they? And then I'd start walking the aisles and come home with like 10 things, none of them what she needed. And she'll be like, where's the basil? And I'm like, oh yeah, basil. But these were on sale. I don't need those. And so this is, this is what covetousness is like. All of these other things get in the way of the whole purpose of going to the store. You go to the store for a purpose and you come home with all this other stuff. It's the same way with covetousness. We were created for a purpose, to love God and to love neighbor. And covetous gets in the way of us living for our purpose. We get stuck in the weeds. And we covet our neighbor's stuff. We don't love them. So here's where we're going to go this morning. We're going to look at the dangers of covetousness, the indicators of covetousness, and the cure for covetousness. So let's look at three dangers of covetousness. This is my, this is my way of, of slipping in really 11 points into a sermon. As I tell you three, now we're getting into the sub points. Here we go. The dangers of covetousness. Here's the first. It's subtle. It's subtle. Uh, Pastor uh, Tim Keller, a number of years ago, he did this like Saturday morning Bible study at his church on the seven deadly sins, much like we're doing the Ten Commandments, you know, 10 weeks, 10 commandments. He did seven weeks, seven deadly sins. And before he started this study, his wife said to him, I bet you're going to have the lowest turnout for greed. And the reason she said that is because people don't think they are. And she was right. Lowest turnout was uh, the deadly sin of greed. People turned up like crazy for lust because they knew they were lustful. They turned up like crazy for gluttony because they knew they were gluttons. But when it came to greed, they're like, that's exactly what it is. Because, see... People just think of themselves as trying to provide for their family or to make wise investments for the future. And, and so it is with covetousness. It's, it's subtle. The 10th commandment is concerned, it's distinct in that it's concerned primarily not with what you do, but with what you want to do. Now, all the other commandments said that implicitly, and then we went to Jesus and what he said in the Sermon on the Mount, and often he would say, do not be angry, or do not murder, and he would say, if you're angry with your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. So it, there's the implicit, and Jesus is making it explicit, but in the commandments themselves, this is the first one that states explicitly about thoughts, emotions, heart, mind. It's about don't covet. The others are don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't do these things. Covetousness is don't think these things. It's not action-oriented, it's heart-oriented. Covetousness is so subtle and yet so pervasive that one cannot love God and neighbor rightly 
and have a covetous heart at the same time. That's the first danger, subtle. Here's the second. It is a root sin. I actually prefer the way that the Puritan preacher Thomas Watson put it. He called it, he called it a mother sin. It's like a mother of sins. It births other sins. And he said the, ten, the tenth commandment is a plain breach of every one of the commandments. That's what we mean by a root sin, is that it, it's the starting place, and then all of these other sins follow. And so Thomas Watson took the tenth commandment and said, look, it's because of the tenth that you break the first nine. This is how he explains it. It breaks the first commandment, this covetousness. It breaks the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, because the covetous person has more gods than one. Money is his god and therefore is an idolater. It breaks the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, because a covetous person bows down, not to the Lord, but the graven image on his coin. It breaks the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, because the lawbreaker would swear falsely in God's name in order to gain wealth. It breaks the fifth commandment, Oh, sorry, it breaks the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy by filling one's mind with the world's goods rather than the goodness of God. It breaks the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother when parents are seen not as family to be honored, but as wealth to capitalize on. It breaks the sixth commandment. You shall not murder because murder is the byproduct of the heart's desire to take the very life from someone. It breaks the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, because the act of adultery starts with the coveting of a married person. It breaks the eighth commandment, you shall not steal, because covetousness is the root of theft. Thieves covet. It breaks the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, because what makes someone take a false oath but covetousness? The tenth commandment, you shall not covet, is a mother sin, a root sin, because it is the heart condition that leads to a breach of every one of the Ten Commandments. See, this command, this Tenth Commandment, do not covet, draws our attention to the first inklings of sin in our hearts. A helpful example for this is King David. There's a story in the Old Testament, I won't get into it, but King David took Bathsheba, this woman, as his own that was theft. That was the breaking of the Eighth Commandment. He committed adultery with her. That was the breaking of the Seventh Commandment. And had her husband killed, that was the breaking of the Sixth Commandment. And it all started with him coveting his neighbor's wife. It is a root sin. The third danger of covetousness is that it leads to death. In Matthew 13 and Luke chapter 8, Jesus tells a parable about, called the parable of the soils. And, and, and Jesus talks about four soils that exist. And so I'll, I'll, I'll just be really quick on this. Here's what's happening in this parable. The farmer is walking through his field, throwing seed onto the ground. The farmer is Jesus. He spreads the seed, which is the word of God, on the ground, and it lands on four different types of soil. And Jesus says afterwards, he's talking about four different hearts. First, the seed lands on the path. We can call that hard hearts. It's those who hear and don't believe. Then he goes on and he throws seed on rocky ground. We can call this shallow hearts. They receive it with joy. Maybe perhaps intellectually they get it in some way, but they have no root. So in the time of testing, they fall away. Then the, the third soil that the seed lands on is among thorns. Let's call this infested 
hearts. Those who initially embrace the message of the gospel and begin to follow, or maybe follow for quite some time, but, it says in Matthew 13, 22, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Then finally, there's the good soil. We can call that soft hearts. The seed is spread there, and those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. There's four types of soils, and yet there's only one that's ultimately fruitful. And the great danger of this thorny soil is that all appearances would say they're followers of Jesus, and yet their hearts are so filled with covetousness that ultimately their hearts belong to another fixated on worries, riches, pleasures of this world that wrestle faith, and faith loses out for this person. See, this third soil represents flirting with the Christian walk, but life gets either too demanding or too tempting, so they don't respond in a way that draws them to Jesus. When a plant is choked out, it's unfruitful, and it gets ripped out, and it dies. See, the thing about covetousness is that it's subtle, it's a root sin, and it leads to death. Okay, because it's subtle, what do we do with this? Because a lot of us, right, it's, it's hard for us to kind of assess, like, our lives with, with, with covetousness. Like, am I really, because there's no actions to kind of really, really look at. We can have really covetous hearts, but just be easy on ourselves and not really follow that through. So let me give you four indicators for eight, no, four, four indicators of covetousness. Here's the first. When your thought life is taken up with the world, it's an indicator that you may be a covetous person, always plotting and projecting about the things of this life, caught up with all that allures in life, but never Jesus. The question to ask about this is how much headspace does your apprenticeship to Jesus take up in your day-to-day life? This following of Jesus, like how much of your thought life is on your walk with the Lord? How much of it is caught up with the world's worries, pleasures, or cravings, the desires, those covetous parts of your life? See, we talk a bit around here about uh, a Christian worldview, having a Christian worldview. And a Christian worldview is orienting all of life around Jesus, not having this this fake divide of there are Christian spheres and non-Christian spheres. Oh, I'm at church, so I'll think about Christian things, my faith right now, but then I go to my secular workplace and faith doesn't apply there. No, a Christian worldview is that you take faith everywhere and you are constantly asking the question, what does it look like to live Christianly here in this circumstance, in this work, and all of that kind of stuff? How much of your thought life is taken up in your apprenticeship to Jesus? An indicator of covetousness is when your thought life is taken up with the world. Building on that, a second indicator is when your conversations are taken up in the world. Talking profits and systems and organizational changes and sports and hobbies. These are all good things that we talk about. I spend a lot of time talking about a lot of these things. But ultimately, at the end of the day, our conversations are taken up with the creation, but never the creator. In your conversations with others, how much does your faith in Jesus shape those in your day-to-day life? How much is Jesus on your lips in your day-to-day life, your faith and working it out in your talk? Building on that, 
The third indicator of covetousness, when your efforts are taken up with the world. This idea of backbreaking, tiring, tenacious steps for the world for attaining earth. Well, meanwhile, you're taking no pains for Christ and attaining heaven. Listen, I've talked about this. I've preached about this before. I have a strong kind of theological view of work. Like we can work hard in our jobs and glorify God in them. Don't hear me say otherwise, that you're laboring for things. other. But what ultimately are you striving for, working towards? Are you ultimately striving to glorify God in your labors? Or is it to achieve ends like a bigger this, a better that? When you, effect, uh, when you assess your physical labors, to what end? For what goal are you striving? And the final indicator I'd share about uh, covetousness this morning is when you'd part with Jesus before you'd part with the world. And we can all sit here in a sanctuary on a Sunday and go, no, never. I wouldn't. But many people have. There was this rich young ruler who walked up to Jesus and said, what do I have to do to inherit the kingdom? And Jesus tells him some of the law, and he says, I've kept all that. I've kept all of that. And Jesus assesses the man, and he says to him, one thing you lack, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. And the man stops in his tracks. And what it says next is, he walked away sad. Not because he didn't believe Jesus, but because he loved the world more. He chose the world over Jesus, and he knew it. So he walked away sad, but he chose the world nonetheless. See, the most overt indicator of covetousness in your life is that given the choice, you take the treasures of this world over the treasure found in Jesus. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 16, what good is it to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? So what we've said this far, thus far, I think James captures in James chapter 1 really, really well when he says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. These internal covetousness kind of desires in our hearts. Each person's tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. So this covetousness now leads us to break these other commands. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Francis Schaeffer, the great 20th century Christian thinker, wrote, Thou shalt not covet is the internal commandment which shows the man who thinks himself to be moral that he really needs a savior. The average such moral man who has lived comparing himself to other men and comparing himself to a rather easy list of rules can feel that he is getting along all right. But suddenly, when he is confronted with the inward command not to covet, he's brought to his knees. What's being said here is the 10th commandment doesn't allow us to get prideful about external religious conformity. I mean, so far in this series, we've kind of shown Jesus um, illuminating more clearly all of the commands, but you can read the list and kind of go, I'm good. But then you get to the 10th commandment and whatever self-confidence any of us might have about the first nine commandments, the 10th exposes the plain truth that we are sinners. 
And listen, this is a gracious thing. This is a gracious thing. This is a gracious thing because it shows us that we need a Savior. I was just talking in the foyer between services, talking to a couple of guys, and they were saying, just when I thought I was doing well, you came and talked about covetousness. But that's great because what it does is we're so tempted in our own hearts to be like, I got this. I got this. I'm doing well. It's actually gracious for God to expose an area in our hearts where we're not doing well. You know why? Because to be a Christian is to know you need Jesus. So it's okay. It's okay. This is a gracious gift from God that he says, even your thoughts for all kinds of stuff that people around you have is sin. But then he drives you to the gospel. It's gracious. Jesus reveals that we're sick and we need the cure. So let's talk about the cure. 18 cures for covetousness. Here we go. No. Three. Here's the first. Covet Jesus more than the world. That's a, that's a pithy thing to say, isn't it? But what if you were to covet Jesus more than you coveted the world? See, when Jesus said, whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with his heart, he wasn't condemning looking. He was condemning looking and lusting. Likewise, the 10th commandment doesn't condemn desiring. It condemns desiring what belongs to others. God create us, created us as desiring beings. We desire all kinds of things. I desire food. When my body needs it, and sometimes when my body doesn't need it, but that's another story. My, my body needs the food, and I desire the food. My body needs sleep, and I desire sleep. My body desires all kind. I desire, I'm a desiring person, and that's okay. What's being addressed here is desiring what belongs to others. That's the rub. In this commandment, I want you to hear this. Jesus isn't asking us to desire less. Jesus is inviting us to desire infinitely more. I think this is one of the great secrets of the Christian faith, actually, is that some of us have believed this false notion that to be a follower of Jesus is to dampen your desires, to dull your desires, right? Kind of this behavior modification. You're not supposed to do these things over here. You should do these pious things over here that seem kind of lame. You know, like, don't do these things that seem really fun. Do these things over here that seem really lame. Dampen your desires. That's false. The beauty of Christianity is that Jesus invites us to desire infinitely more because there are infinitely greater things to desire than what the world can offer us. Amen? And so our desires in Christ actually get enlivened, not dampened. Enlivened to the right things and automatically some of these skewed desires work themselves out. That's why the faith looks messy sometimes. That's why we have to kind of fumble our way a little bit as the church and Christians and how we give grace and how we fence our lives. It's, it's, we're trying to figure out how to desire Christ rightly and let everything else by the Holy Spirit and by how he instructs us to fit it into place. See, Jesus calls us to seek first the kingdom and everything else will work out. 
One of C.S. Lewis's most famous lines comes from his book, The Weight of Glory. I have to quote it about once a year, so here we go. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. A bunch of half-hearted creatures. Yeah, we've got our desires, we've got our pleasures, but they're they're not the fullness of why we were created. We're not living to the extent of the communion that God invites us into. We're far too easily pleased messing about. It's half-hearted creatures. Our desires aren't too great. They're too weak. We settle for substitutes and metaphors for the pleasures of God rather than the transcendent pleasures of God. Did you know that sex is a metaphor for the pleasures of God? And we settle for the metaphor. I mean... Fair, but, but really, you're not with me on that, eh? Okay. Uh, but really, it's just a metaphor of something infinitely more great. doesn't mean the metaphor is bad. It's good in its proper context, but it's a metaphor for something infinitely more valuable, more beautiful, more stunning. And we settle for the half measure. We settle for the metaphor of the more grand thing. But if we were to covet Jesus more, invariably, we'll covet other things less. If we covet heaven more, we'll covet earth less. Last night we were at a friend's uh, uh, big surprise birthday celebration. Uh, family friends of ours. And so we, uh, it was uh, great for Emily. She's got a great outgoing personality and was mingling with people, making friends. And this was a nightmare for me. I was like, I didn't know anybody but like the birthday couple, which is like they're taken up with visiting other people. So I have to like get to know strangers. And this for me is really hard. I don't, like I'm an introvert. I really, really am. And so this was tough. And so I got talking with a guy. We get into the conversation and he says, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm a pastor. And then the conversation died. <laughs> this happens a lot. So just trying to keep it going, I'm like, what do you do? He's like, oh, I do this sales thing, da, 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 da. And the conversation was, it was sputtering, for sure. Uh, and I said, like, okay, well, he asked me what I'm into, and I talked about, you know, my pastoring <laughs> was losing him again. And so I asked, what are you, what are you interested in? And he's like, oh, I love climbing, I love hiking. And uh, this, again, kind of, you know, when I said I was a pastor, it killed the conversation for him. When he said he's into the outdoors, it killed the conversation for me. I'm like a great indoorsman. This is my relationship with Chilliwack, is I joke that like I'm the only guy who does not have one of the following things in this whole city. A truck, a fishing rod, a gun for hunting, uh, or what else? A quad, or uh, a, a tent even, like for camping. <laughs> our family are actually going camping in a couple weeks, and, and Emily and I realize we only have two sleeping bags for our four-person family, because we don't do this. Uh, it's going to get interesting. Pray for me. So we're talking, and I'm like, okay, 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 I, I can see, I get it. I get conceptually the beauty of 
creation and uh, walking in it and climbing. And, and, and he talked, I was like, okay, so where should I take? We've taken our boys on some little hikes, you know. He's like, oh, the Shiam Range, like just Mount Shiam. Like it, I climbed it the other day and it was crystal clear. I could see Vancouver. And I looked out, I could even see Vancouver Island. And then he said to me, when you're up there looking down like that, puts everything in perspective. Doesn't it? Oh, that's, that's Chilliwack down there. Look how tiny that is. Look how little it is. I could squish my house. So small. Puts things in perspective. As your vantage point changes, what has loomed large diminishes. With hearts more fixated on Jesus, the possessions and pursuits of this world diminish. What were the big fixtures of emphasis in our lives become tiny specks. Jesus doesn't want us to dampen our desires. He wants our half-hearted desires for worldly things to be transformed into infinite joy in the promises of God. The second cure for covetousness is faith in God's provision. Covet Jesus more, and secondly, to put our place our faith in God's provision. Eight years ago, uh, our family moved to Chilliwack, and we moved into this beautiful little townhouse. And for months, for months, we were like pinching ourselves. Like, can you believe this? This is ours? We're like, these floors are ours. Like, these... Three narrow, like, floors of home are ours. <laughs> These appliances are ours. This little plot of grass, I, I hear um, officially from the strata that it's everybody's common use, but we feel like it's our little, sp our little spot, you know? This is, we, oh, for months, it's like, this is amazing. And then, you know, some of our friends started to, like, buy, like, like houses, houses, you know? <laughs> and we'd go over to their houses, and we'd start to realize, wow, did you see the three spare rooms? Did you see the living room, the den, and the family room? And the basement rec room? Did you see their appliances? Did you see their appliances? Crushed ice? <laughs> like if I want crushed ice, I go outside and crush the ice. Like they just have crushed ice. Oh, what? Look, look at this little dump. It's too small. It's too little. The appliances are getting too old. The floors are getting too worn. Oh, theirs was so nice. We do this with everything. Like, do you have a spouse you've had for quite a while? <laughs> wow. Look... Look how she talks to him with such kindness. Wow, look how hard he actually works and gets stuff done around the house. I asked, I think, I think she asked like the day before if he could fix that thing and he did it. I asked him two months ago to fix this little thing. Let's do it myself. Like, oh, why can't he be more like him? Why can't she be more like her? Kids. Look how they are with their kids. They're such good parents. We're such bad parents. Ah, I wish we were parents like them. I wish our kids were, were more like their kids, and then we'd probably be parents like them. <laughs> and you're at work, and your coworker gets a promotion, and you, 
you're, you're staying static. You hear a rumbling that they got a raise and you're staying static. What are they doing that I'm not doing? Oh, I wish I had those skills that they have. I just obviously don't have. I'm... Personal attributes. Stuff like appearances, body image stuff. Wish I looked like her. I mean, not me personally, but... <laughs> Some of you ladies are saying, I wish I, I looked like her. Some of you guys are like, I, I wish I looked like this, you know, and I get that. <laughs> no. Sarcasm, believe me, okay? All of this stuff. Or age. When you're young. I wish I was older. When you're older. I wish I was younger. Like, no... For every stage of life, we're never satisfied with the age we are. We wish we were a different one. Our whole lives. All of this stuff happens. Vacation destinations. Some of us are like, man, our vacation destination is like going across town to that water park. And then I just talk to these people and they're going to these exotic locations. Wish we could go on the vacations that they go on. More painful things. You're single and it's not, not by choice. Why is everyone around me getting married? I don't want to go to four weddings this summer unless I'm the bride or the groom in one of them. I'm tired of it. Or kids, you long for a child and God hasn't allowed that to happen and you look on your social media feed and dang it, everybody's just taking family pictures with their kids and posting them everywhere. Everywhere I go, there's these little kids and their moms and their dad. Everywhere I, I can't bear it. Covetousness, to crave and yearn for something that belongs to someone else. Look, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying we do it. We are constantly comparing ourselves to other people and other people's situations. And then oftentimes what happens is resentment sets in. We don't get what they have. And we say, God, why? You clearly don't care about me. You're not giving me this or this. Jesus spoke right into this situation when he was talking to a group of people and he said, see the birds? The Heavenly Father feeds those birds. And he says this rhetorical question, are you not of more value than they? See the lilies? Heavenly Father clothes those lilies. Are you not of infinitely more value than they? See, anxiety is worry that God will not come through and provide for basic needs, whereas covetous is not trusting in the goodness of God because he's kept some wants, some desires from you that you are desiring of others. And the reality is that God knows what you need and what you don't. And we need to have faith in that in his provision in that. See, this is true of the Apostle Paul. He wrote in 2 Corinthians 11 about the difficulties in his life. Great missionary. Listen to what he dealt with in his life. And yet he's going to say at the end that he was content, which is mind-boggling. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Now, it was believed that 40 lashes would kill a person. So they would sometimes, as a terrible punishment, give 40 lashes minus one. Paul had that five times. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. This is what Paul's dealing with. And then he goes on to talk about pleading with Jesus to take away a particular hardship he faced. And then listen to what he says. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's the words of Jesus into your circumstance. So Paul goes on, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For, this, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, God knew what Paul wanted, but he also knew what he needed. He didn't need ease. He needed desperation in order to make him dependent on God and satisfied in him. What you are facing in your life right now is an opportunity for faith in God's provision. I don't have this thing. I desire it. I long for it. But I have faith that God has given me what I need right now. Will you take that heart for Jesus and sink it there into faith in the goodness of God and be content right now with his provision. That is the third cure. Not only faith in God's provision, but contentment with it. See, the tenth commandment put positively is not do not covet, it is be content. To be content is to want what God wants for us instead of what we want for us. And the way to get rid of covetousness is to be completely satisfied with God and what he provides. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have no reason to doubt his goodness. Your circumstances, as unideal or as difficult as they may be, should never cause you to doubt the goodness of God. Why? Because God has not spared any expense when it comes to providing for you. Listen to me. The reason you can be content is because you can trust and believe and know that God has not spared any expense when it comes to providing for you. You can trust Jesus and be content because he has already provided everything you will ever need. See, in the gospel, God is offering his son Jesus to a bunch of people who covet. Not God, but other things. But God in his grace provides saying, here, you don't realize it, but in offering you my son Jesus, I am providing for you everything you will ever truly need. We're a bunch of coveters in the room, but the truth of the matter is God comes into our circumstances and says, here, you don't realize it, but in offering you my son Jesus, I'm providing for you everything you will ever truly need. So don't buy the lie 
that a little more money will make you content. Don't buy the lie that if you were a little thinner, you would be content. Don't buy the lie that if your personality was more easygoing and attractive, you'd be content. Don't buy the lie that if you found that spouse, you would be content. Don't buy the lie that if you had a baby or more or another baby, or if your baby wasn't a baby anymore, then you would be content or whatever it might be. Then you would trust Jesus. No! Don't buy the lie. When God provided his son, Jesus, he provided everything for you that you will ever truly need. Here's what leads to contentment. Because God provided so richly for your salvation through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then without a doubt, he can be trusted and counted on in the minutia of your daily life. Will you have faith in his provision? And will you be content in what he has provided? After all, he's given you his son, Jesus. What else do you need? I'm going to invite you to stand. We have been, every week in these 10 weeks, we have been reading a Ten Commandment corporate confession. And now we get to the last one. It's a little bit lengthy, but I invite you over the course of this reading to do two things, to confess and also to marvel at the fact that Jesus has met you in your failure of each one and he accomplished them, he fulfilled them for you on your behalf. So where you fail, you can turn to your Savior with gratitude. You can confess where you failed and you can show gratitude for his provision in Christ. After the reading, we're going to respond by singing together. And we're also going to have our prayer team around in different parts of the room. We just count it such a privilege to get to pray with you. Anything on your heart this morning, feel free to just make your way to one of the prayer team members. We'd love to pray with you. You can read the sections that are labeled all. Holy and righteous God, we confess that like Isaiah, we are a people of unclean lips. But it is not unclean lips we possess, not only unclean lips we possess. We are people with unclean hands and unclean hearts. We have broken your law times without number and are guilty of pride, unbelief, self-centeredness, and idolatry. Affect our hearts with the severity of our sin and the glory of your righteousness as we now acknowledge our sins in your holy presence. We have had other gods before you. We have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. We have sought satisfaction in this world's pleasures rather than in you. We have taken your name in vain. We have prayed religious prayers to impress others. We have uttered your name countless times without reverence or love. We have murdered in our hearts. We have often destroyed our neighbor with our tongues. We have been quick to uncharitably judge others. We have committed adultery with our eyes. We have lusted after unlawful and immoral pleasures. We have justified our lusts by using the world as our standard. We have stolen what is not ours. We have complained in the midst of your abundant provision. 
We have lied to you and to others. We have told distorted truths, half-truths, and untruths. We have despised the truth to make ourselves look better. We have coveted what belongs to others. Our lives overflow with discontent, ungratefulness, and envy. We have sought to exalt ourselves through owning more. O oh God, we have sinned against your mercy times without number. We have no answer to your righteous wrath and just judgment. We have no answer, but God himself has mercifully provided one for us. In Christ, who came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, we are saved. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Amen.